I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara. This is the Know Your Why podcast, and today I'm very excited to be here with David Grabener. David, how are you doing today? Doing good, Jason. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we talked a little bit before hitting record, but uh, what I'm really excited about right now is is we're just gonna we're just gonna let David go and and kind of tell his story from the beginning and. And then uh, we'll dive into whatever whatever parts of, of that we want to pick apart. But uh, but please go ahead and, and tell everyone about yourself. I, I, I'm excited to hear. Thank you, Jason. So, yeah, I wanted to go back and start kind of from the beginning because uh, it, it kind of shaped me and it shapes my my why. So when I was young, I was growing up. Uh, we grew up in the New England area, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, until I was about 10 years old. And my dad um, was and is a pastor. And it, it was interesting because we never really had much money, him just being a pastor and my mom staying at home with the kids. Um, but because he was a pastor and we lived in a parsonage, we kind of lived in a middle-class neighborhood. We kind of lived in an area that was above our income range, thinking back to it. Um, so I always had growing up this like, feeling of like, oh, all these other kids have all this other stuff. You know, they have the, the cars that you, the little cars you can drive in, which back then were really expensive. And, you know, like all these things that I didn't have. But what my parents did a really good job of was they were good with their money, they saved their money, and then we would go on trips. And so everyone in the neighborhood thought we had money because like we drove all the way down to Florida. Uh, we went all the way out to Wyoming. Like my on a mission trip, I went all the way to Russia with my dad. Um, so I got to experience so many things, even as I was young, and those experience helped, you know, open my eyes to the rest of the world. You know, I think it's a Mark Twain quote, like the the death of, oh, how does it go? But anyways, travel, travel, when you travel, you will no longer be bigoted, you know, like it, it just kills that in you because you've seen all these other, yeah. um, you know, all these other cultures, all these way people think, and even in different parts of the States. So that's how I was growing up. And I, I was homeschooled at the time we stayed home and we had the kids, um, we had the friends in the neighborhood, but it, it was like kind of living in a, in a world that was a little bit more privileged than we, when we really were making. Now my dad was very good with money and he he had like little small businesses as well to make a little bit more money. Like he used to sell used cars. It's funny people would complain, oh, he's a pastor and he's selling used cars. And one time he got a, a tip that like this Harley motorcycle, this soft tail special was coming out and they're only making a couple of them. And so he bought one, like he got on the list and he bought a brand new motorcycle and we just like kept it in the garage. And then someone from Chicago found out he was selling it, came out and bought it. like. He just made some money off of buying. I mean, like, I think Smart. we maybe drove that motorcycle like five miles. 
<laughs> like that's it. Like I used to sit yeah. on it. Uh, that was it. I knew he knew nothing about Harley motorcycles. He just heard that was the tip. And anyways, so that was our life until about 10 years old. And then my dad decided he, he got like a request from some other friends to move to Zambia and Africa. And they're saying, you know what? We're going to go to Zambia. We're going to be a mission over there. And I'm like 10 years old. I'm like, oh yeah, this is exciting. My sister was 13 and, or 12. And she was like, I'm going to miss my friends. I don't want to do this. This is horrible. Uh, but it ended up being such an amazing experience. Because when we moved over to Zambia, the one thing my dad promised was, if we go to Africa, we'll get you dirt bikes. So like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a dirt bike. So I got a dirt bike, my sister got a dirt bike and we're over there and we're living on this huge farm. It's like 4,000 acres and it's a mission farm. So there's a couple other missionary families and there's local Zambians who live on the farm and then the farm grows bananas. And then they sell the bananas to then support their mission activities of um, you know, teaching people the gospel, um, teaching women how to sew, um, teaching people better farming techniques, like just like different adult education programs. And it's still, there's a wonderful place. It's called Riverside Farm. And it was just the best place to like grow up um, at that time because I could just like go out and explore and run around. And, you know, I got 4,000 acres and all these other Zambian friends. And I really started taking in the local culture. Uh, I wasn't I didn't stay apart. Like I really jumped in me and especially my younger brother who was four at the time, like he really jumped in and, and we learned the local language. And looking back at it, it it's kind of interesting because the, the now my parents were even making less money. Like I think their salary was like $600 a month, but that we were so wealthy in compared to the people that we were with. Like, the amount of wealth, like I was driving a dirt bike as an 11 year old, that the people there, that was a year's salary in order for them to even try to buy that thing. So none of them had a dirt bike like I had, you know, like all the workers, like they did it. Um, and it, it, it's crazy, you know, when I think back of like, wow, like I was so wealthy, even though by the standards in the States, I was so poor. Um, and I learned a lot of lessons there, just, you know, seeing the local people, how they acted, how they took care of family, how money wasn't so important. It was more about the relationships. And I would drive my dirt bike with some friends and we would go out into the villages, like way out there. And I would get out there and these people are like even poor. They're not even working on the farm. But when I would get there, they didn't think, oh, wow, here's this rich brat American kid on his dirt bike. They were just like, oh, here's a stranger and here, have a glass of water. Like whatever they had to give, they would give it. Even if it's just a glass of water, like here's a glass of water, like you're a visitor, um, you know, we're gonna take care of you. And those, those types of things like really impressed on me, like there are good, happy people who are living their best life based off of the opportunities they have. And, and I see them as successful because it's not necessarily the success that you would see in the Western world, but you know, they have their farm, they're growing their vegetables, they're happy when someone comes to visit them, they offer them, a, you know, they're, they're, they're willing to take care of them. Um, and they're not just jealous or aspiring to have the thing that I have just because I have a motorbike, you know? Um, it really, it really hit home to me. Then I went to high school. So I was living in this, you know, getting involved in this like, 
local village mindset. And then I go to high school and it's really interesting because then I go to high school in Kenya and in Kenya, the high school was like for missionary kids, but there was a lot of also other African kids, but these are Africans from wealthier families that I could afford to go to this American high school in Kenya. So in a sense, when I got there, since I had like been getting this like local village culture, when I got there, these other African kids were way more first world than I was. And, and they would call me like the Bushman or the villager or whatever, because I had like adopted all, you know, I was just like living with the local people. Like I was, you know, hunting for they have these huge rats called cane rats. And so I would take my dog and we would spear and we'd go hunting for cane rats or we would be trapping doves. Like I was like all in just like the local things, whatever we were doing. So they really thought I was like, wow, this is like a real villager, uh, even though I was an American. Um, and, and it just provided another opportunity because it was a small high school, but they had about 30 different nationalities represented in the school. So, you know, talk about different cultures and different, you know, values and, and all of this and, and just mixing together. It, it really helps, I don't know, shape your life when you're able to see how so many other cultures and people live um, and you get used to interacting with different people and interacting with people that are different than you. And that really helped me in the future. Um, and I think like I have no problem relating to and interacting with my tenants who are in a completely different situation than I am and who are, have completely different problems because I kind of have been doing that my whole life of interacting with people who are very different, different backgrounds, you know, different experiences, different opportunities. Um, but it was a lot of fun. So four years boarding school in Kenya. I mean, it really is privilege. I mean, we got to do so many things. We got to go to the beach there. We got to climb Mount Kenya four times. Like the school was a really good experience. And we got a lot of friends out of that. So our friend groups, then we went to school there and then we went to college in the States. So now all our high school friends were kind of going to like the same colleges and we're still hanging out and stuff. And that's how I end up marrying my wife. Um, she's from Argentina. Her parents were working in the Congo. And then we were friends in high school. I wanted to be more than friends. She didn't want to have anything to do with me. Um, <laughs> and she, she seems like you won her over though. <laughs> uh, I bet like four years later, right? No, like it, it took a long time. I finally convinced her. And I mean, and to be fair, like I was, I was learning things in high school, but I was still like this kind of, I still carried that outspoken kind of like attitude of Americans that was very foreign to that setting out I was in, right? So I had adopted some like local village things, but still I had this outspoken, like in sometimes disrespectful, definitely to authorities, to the faculty or whatever, that kind of was very off-putting to some people and that I've been able to tone down over time. <laughs> Fortunately, grown up uh, a little bit. So a lot of, and my wife was like the complete opposite, like the perfect, just like, so respectful, like you would never think would get into trouble, like kind, loving woman. So when people heard like that I was with her, they would be like, what, what happened? <laughs> uh, they're like, no, David changed. Anyways, um, but yeah, so I, I won her over uh, in college. So I came back to Tennessee area to go to college and we were there having our friends and my parents were still working 
um, overseas as missionaries. And they were what's called self-supporting missionaries. So they didn't work directly for any church organization. So there was no special funding for my college. So a lot of people that I was with were work, their parents worked for the church. So the church would pay and they would get a discount to go to the school and everything like that. Cause we went to a, uh, a Christian college here in Tennessee. And then, but I didn't have that advantage. My parents didn't work for the church and they weren't making much money. So it was like, okay, I'm going to college, but then I have to figure out how to pay for it. So um, a very good friend of my parents gave me a car and I drove it down from Pennsylvania to go to college here in Tennessee. And that little Toyota Corolla, 91 Toyota Corolla, I'll never forget it. It's the best car I ever had, honestly. And that enabled me to then go work off campus. Like I didn't just have to work on the campus. I had a car, I could go work. So I got a job um, as a framer on a construction crew, building houses. So this is 2003. It's a good time to be building houses. People are building, building, building. And, you know, I'm working really hard, like framing and then going to school. So I'm doing that about 20, 20 hours a week, framing, going to school full time. Then, okay, I need more money. Then I got another job on campus as uh, an RA in the, in the dorm. And so that, that's another about 20 hours a week that they paid me for, even though some of it I could be studying and stuff like that. So I'm like working 30, 40 hours a week full time as I go to school. And, and, and sometimes I'm really struggling to make the money. Like I, I remember, and I don't know if it was just how I grew up or whatever, but I just remember, like, I never asked anyone for anything. Like I never asked anyone for money. Like my grandma, she's not wealthy, but she had some money. I mean, I, I surely could have asked her if I was having a hard time. You know, my parents, I could have asked like, but I knew they didn't make money. And I knew it was like, oh, this is my responsibility. And I took responsibility at an early age and like, okay, I'm working to pay for my college. Yes, I have some scholarships. Yes, I took some loans. But like one semester, I, I needed to register for the next semester and I still had a bill. And I didn't have enough money. And I was literally doing everything. Like I was like, I had like two bank accounts. I like closed one bank account to put it all in one bank account. So I could just transfer and have like, you know, the minimum $50, like just to get that extra $50 that's supposed to stay in the bank account, right? Like move that over. I'm, I'm going around like school's over and people, there's the campus bookstore and people had like left their books or whatever. And I'm like going around and like collecting people's leftover books and taking them back to the campus store to get the refund um, on the books. Just like whatever I could do just to scrape together that enough money so that I could um, register for the next semester. And, and, you know, I made it, you know, I sure enough, I scraped together enough money to register for the next semester. And then the next semester comes and I'm like, okay, like I need to make more money. And me and my friends are like, okay, we got to figure out a way to make more money. So let's do some like entrepreneurial things here. So we decided to start um, a lawn care business. We bought this truck uh, like for 500 bucks that someone was selling at a yard sale truck at a yard sale, <laughs> old Nissan single cab truck. Um, and we borrowed some like uh, lawn care equipment, you know, the blower, the weed whacker, the, anyway, so we borrowed that and we're like, okay, we're gonna start doing lawn care. So we start like telling people, hey, we're doing lawn care, da, da, da. We get a couple of jobs and we're like, 
man, this is not for us. Like, this is hard work. Like, we're out here. It's not worth the money that we're making out of it. Like, this is too much. So uh, we, we, we turn around and we sell the truck, but we sell the truck for a little bit of profit. So we're like, oh, okay, why don't we start like selling stuff like this is on eBay, right? Those are those times eBay's there. Like start selling trucks and cars and stuff on eBay. So we started like selling different little things and trucks and a car. And we went all the way up to New Jersey to get a car and we towed it down crazy, towed it behind uh, another car, like just with a strap. So one person's in the back all the way from New Jersey to Tennessee, a person in the back is like pressing on the brake to do the brakes. And at first we're like really careful, we're only going like 45 miles an hour. By the end, we're just like 80, like we gotta get back. Uh, oh man, it was, it was crazy. The whole way down, never got stopped, whatever. We just towed it all the way down. And then fortunately there ended up being a recall on that car. It was a, uh, a Daewoo. And there was a recall on it. So they fixed the problem for free. And then we sold that, made some money. And they're like, oh, we can sell other people's cars. And then I got in trouble with my friends because I started doing what's called shill bidding. I didn't know it was illegal or whatever, but basically bidding on my friend's listing. And they saw the IP address are close and like, oh, you're bidding on a friend's listing and that's not allowed. So they kicked me off of eBay. Um, and I still, I haven't tried to get back on, honestly, after that. So I'm still, I guess, banned from eBay. <laughs> an eBay outlaw. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, we were just trying these, these little entrepreneurial schemes, like always trying to do something to make a little bit more money. And then I ended up starting with a friend, my own construction company, a framing business. Um, and you know, that was good while it was going good. Like I was, we were, we had some jobs primarily from one contractor. Um, and I was like, you know, this is good money. Like, I like it, you know, I'm working with my hands. I'm doing something. I enjoy it. I, I still, to this day, like there's not many things as satisfying as putting up OSB on walls or on the roof of a house. Like when you just do that and like, you just see, like it started here in the end of the day, you put a whole roof on of OSB yeah. and you're up there and like, <laughs> oh man. There's some satisfaction to that. And I, like, I love framing. Yeah. <laughs> Carrying that big sheet of OSB. Like it, it was just like, you know, being part of the crew and doing it anyways. But so I was like, okay, I'm going to graduate. I started the company, D&D Custom Construction with my friend, Dustin. And we were making money and I was like, okay, when I graduate college, we're just going to do this full time. We're going to have a construction company. And, you know, it's like my business. I like it. We're going to and then 2007 happened, the housing market crashed, the framer, I mean, the contractor we had all the jobs through, he filed for bankruptcy. Um, you know, we got a couple other like little remodel jobs after that, but it basically just dried up. And fortunately we didn't lose money, but my friend and I kind of just split ways and like, okay, this is over. Now, what am I gonna do? Um, so I'm like lost. Well, what am I going to do? Okay. Go to a job career fair. Cause I thought that was my, I hadn't really been, and this was kind of on me that I hadn't really gone and done any like internships or anything with other big companies while I was working. I mean, while I was in college, cause I just planned on, you know, having my own business. Um, and so then I go to a, my last semester, like, okay, I'm graduating at the end of the semester. I go to job career fair, like trying to find a job. Like, what am I going to even do? Right. And I find this company Fastenal. They sell nuts and bolts 
directly to supplier like manufacturers and stuff like that. I mean, they have stores too, but primarily their businesses, they, they take, they stock all the nuts and bolts inside of like automotive plants and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh yeah, I need a job right away. Oh yeah, you can start right away. Okay, I'll start here. And then after I graduate, I'll just go full time. So I, I, I jump in, we're selling nuts and bolts. And honestly, like I had such a better work ethic than a lot of people there. And I was like, oh yeah, this is going great. Like I could definitely do this. Like I could move up in this company. Like, you know, I could be the manager of the store or whatever. This will be my, what I'll do. No problem. I can do this. And I worked there. I, I, I'm graduating a semester late, so I'm going to end in December. And like, I'm graduating in December and December 10th or something, right before I'm about to graduate, he, the manager calls me in the office and like, hey, you know, obviously the economy is contracting at this point right. in the great um, recession back then. And the manager calls me in the office like, hey, corporate says we need to reduce our employees you're the last person hired so you're gone and i was like oh man i was by far way better than so many other employees they had there yeah. but like that's just how they made the decision like last employee gone. and i was like just planning like oh i'm full time into this <laughs> right. so I'm like what am i gonna do and so yeah so i i you know i wanted to marry my girlfriend at the time um we were planning to get married I, yeah, I had already proposed the wedding was going to be in May and I lose my job. My wife's from Argentina, so she either has to be in school. Uh, she, she graduated as a nurse, but because of like um, legal status and work status, she wasn't going to be able to work for until we got her her green card. So, or the work from temporary work permit while waiting for the green card. Anyway, so it was going to take several months. Like, what am I going to do? So yeah, at that time, it was really hard to find jobs, especially I was a business major. No one's going to hire in the recession. Who's hiring a brand new business person to come manage your business who has no business experience? Like nobody. <laughs> at that point, like unemployment for college graduates was like new people coming out was like a 30%. Like it was, it was a crazy time. So I get a call from an insurance company. Hey, you want to come sell insurance? I'm like, well, got nothing else, nothing else going on. <laughs> right. So uh, he gives me a call, um, come out, let's go sell insurance. And I'm just straight commission selling insurance, calling about 200 to 300 numbers on my calling days a day, just calling. Hey, would you like me to come out and explain how Medicare supplements work for you? Duh. Yeah, sure. Come on out. All right. Set up all these appointments, go out and see these old people, sell them Medicare supplement insurance, sell them some life insurance. Um, <clears throat> but just like driving all over Chattanooga, just selling insurance. And funnily, I was actually successful compared to the other people doing it, but still it was so difficult. And I really wasn't that successful looking back. Like I was just looking back at it. Like I did it for uh, two, two, like two and a half years, two solid years. And the first year I, I did make like 19,000 before any expenses. And then the second year I made like 14,000 before any expenses. And it's like, it was nothing, honestly. Um, so it's like, okay, need to change. I cannot do this, cannot do this. And then I, 
I was able to get a job at the University of Phoenix, essentially selling education, where I just called people, enrolled them as student. Well, yeah, I would call them and enroll them as students, convince them to sign up uh, to get their college education. So I did that for a while. And then while I was there, I also got my MBA for free. Um, and then I decided to move back to Africa. So my wife's parents had started a hospital in the Congo and they asked us if we would come over and help them. So my wife's a nurse and I had gotten my MBA with an emphasis in healthcare management. So, okay, I'll go over and be a hospital administrator. And we had, at that point, we had bought one house that we did a live-in fix up on. I mean, we did everything. My wife, I mean, she was helping me laying the hardwood flooring, like, like everything. Like we remodeled the whole house. And as soon as it got nice, we're like, okay, we're moving to Africa and we got to rent this thing out and we needed to fix the AC. And the AC guy came over to, to fix it. And he's like, oh, what are you going to do? Rent this? I was like, oh yeah, you're going to rent this house. He's like, how much? I told him, he's like, okay, I'll take it. I was like, perfect. I didn't even have to advertise it. Just rented out to him. And we had a dog that we didn't know what to do with like, oh, I'll keep the dog too. So him and his wife kept the dog until this day, they still have the dog. Uh, <laughs> the dog's still alive and they divorced, but she has the dog <laughs> and they rented the house. And so that was great because we had that little bit of rental income, kind of the first taste, right? So we had that little bit of rental income and it was decent. I mean, we were I think our mortgage payment was about 800 at the time and they were paying about 1100 a month, um, 1200 a month, somewhere in there um, in rent. So we're making a little bit of money going to Africa. We sell our cars. We have a little bit of money too. And I just jump in, in the Congo. I didn't speak any French and I had never managed a bunch of employees or anything like that. And it was a really interesting situation because my mother-in-law was like kind of the hospital administrator there and she was doing a good job, but she kind of lacked some of the, the technological side of like how to make things more technological. Like she's doing everything just by hand and yeah. like no inventory system. Like it was very like, and she was very overwhelmed. Um, and there was a lot of ways that can improve, but she wasn't like stepping aside. So I kind of came in and we were able to work out this kind of like co-boss situation with my mother-in-law. Um, you wouldn't think it would be possible, but it worked. <laughs> Said by no one else ever. <laughs> right, exactly. And we, we, for like six months and we had a brand new baby and we moved in with them with our brand new baby. For six months, we lived in their house while our little duplex was getting uh, fixed up. And my brother-in-law and his wife also moved there. He's like an IT guy. And she's also a nurse. And so they, we lived in two sides of the duplexes together. Great times. Living, growing up in, in Congo. I love Congo. I love the Congolese, but it is a very difficult place to work. Very different than Zambia. It's so interesting, the different cultures that happen. So like Zambia has been peaceful almost its entire existence. It never had that oppressive colonial power the British moved out pretty quickly and easily when they fought for independence. It wasn't that much of a fight. There wasn't that, you know, big installation of the colonial power. So the Zambians have a very friendly, um, you know, relationship with foreigners. 
there's not that kind of resentment or racial tension like there is in South Africa. It, it, it's very calm and nice. And, and these people, you know, have the Zambians have this sense of certainty, like I'm just going to grow my crops and I'll take care of myself. And there's that certainty. Congo, on the other hand, has just been since the beginning, has been conflict after conflict after conflict after conflict. And Congo is a very big country and there's not good roads and, and, and it's very disjointed as a country and there's not a lot of certainty. So people don't really grow their own crops. I mean, some do, but not as a general culture in most of the country, especially where we were in the South where there's a lot of mines. So what happened is in the South, there's all these mining. So lots of money's coming in, right? Money's coming in, there's mining here and you have an uncertain culture and there's always a people. So everyone is concerned about the culture is, I need to look out for myself. Now they still take care of their family, right? They're their family. But if I'm in a position to take advantage of something, I need to take advantage of it. And whether that's someone else or whether that's getting money off of someone else, whether that's so, so bribing is very prevalent. Um, as soon as you get in the airport, like the person who stamped your passport is going to ask you for money. Like there's police people on every corner and they're trying to stop you to ask you for money. Like they'll try to get your, you'll try to get your driver's license. If they get it, they won't give it back until you give them money. So, and people are not like, thieves by nature they're not like scheming to be thieves but a lot of them because of like i said this culture that comes from the top and the bottom when they learn it as a kid a lot of government employees or whatever are always trying to get money out of you and if there's an opportunity um yeah if there's an opportunity for someone to to take money from you like steal from you like if your money's just sitting there they might they it's likely going to be gone, right? It's definitely they, getting taken. <laughs> right. They didn't come with intention to rob you, but they saw an opportunity and they took it. Like that's the kind of the best way I can explain it. But the people are still very kind, loving, and for all they've gone through and all their culture, like, you know, I still really love them. And I really have this great, as tough as it was, I still have this, um, I really love my time there. Um, it, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting because I see how, it's really a culture issue. And I see like all these entrepreneurs over there, how difficult they have it. It's not just like, I see like, oh, there's this culture that's oppressing foreigners. It's oppressing their own entrepreneurs. Because if you're an entrepreneur over there, you have a little store and then there's like 10 government officials that come every year demanding money from you. And you have all these different reports and you have all these things and you have to turn them in. And it's really difficult for the entrepreneurs to get somewhere too, not just a foreigner. I remember the one time when I first came in, we had this control and they came in and they found all these things we did wrong. And so we had to pay them some money for fines and their time and da, da, da. essentially we had to bribe them, not bribe them because that's illegal for an American to pay a bribe. Interestingly enough, as an American, if I'm working over there and I pay a bribe, I could get uh, arrested in the US. Um, but oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it, it's illegal for an American to pay a bribe in a foreign country, but what, how I looked at it was, I'm not paying a bribe because a bribe would be paying for something I don't deserve. I'm just paying to be able to do what I should have been able to do, right? Right. So that's the how- cost of doing business. Exactly, exactly. I'm not paying to get any special privilege. <laughs> I'm just paying to get what I should have already had. Right. Um, so the inspector comes in, they find all these problems. Next year they come through and I'm like reading like Congolese law 
Like I'm really a DIY person. Like I want to understand, right? I don't know French. I'm learning French. I'm reading French Congolese law and I'm like going through and we have the local people and I'm spending all the time with a local lawyer. And so I'm like, okay, now we're doing everything right. We are doing everything by the book. We've paid all the taxes you're supposed to pay, like everything right. Like you're not going to find anything. And they come in. I said, you know, we've done everything right. You're not going to find anything. They're like, oh, we always find something. <laughs> <laughs> need some way some way to they justify to that fee yeah, yeah yeah they have to get paid but on the other hand they're not getting paid a salary right if they don't bring back money to their boss it's a whole system anyways i've kind of i've kind of gone off track there uh but so i learned so much and like so much stress and in, in order to get things done over there um in a hospital and we grew the hospital i mean we took it um you know, we, we grew it to like 60 beds. Um, it was doing like a million in revenue when I started there. And then like four or five years later, we got it up to 6 million in revenue. Um, like it was, a, it was a great experience, a great learning experience that I helped like really shape it. Um, and unfortunately, well, so while I was doing that, let me start the, there. <clears throat> while I was doing that, I started talking with um, my wife about this thing called financial independence. And I had this idea, like if I save up my money, now I'm not making a lot of money, but if I save up, we were making 54,000 a year <clears throat> as a family. And we were a family of four at the time because we had another baby that came. And I was like, okay, but if we save our money and we buy some real estate in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, buy a rental property, then we, we build it to another one and another one and another one. And, and in five years, we could have $30,000 a year of income. And that would enable us to go live anywhere in the world and work at any mission project or work anywhere. And we would still have our basics needs taken care of, right? 30,000 to be taken care of. Like, okay. So I started like reading Bigger Pockets, listening to Bigger Pockets, um, Mr. Money Mustache actually about like really like being frugal and saving your money and so, and they, on Mr. Money Mustache, he also had a real estate form. So I was on that form a lot too. And I got sold on this idea of financial independence, but stocks were gonna take too long. So I was gonna have to do the real estate. So I started talking with my dad who still lived in the Chattanooga area. And he's like, yeah, let's do this, let's do this. So we found a quadplex that we bought together. We put our money together and we were going to get a loan from the bank, but my, my grandma wanted to be involved in the first property. So she lent us a hundred thousand. She was like the bank, a uh, hundred thousand. And we, my dad and I both put in 12,500, which is like 125,000 to buy this quadplex. And that was our very first purchase. And I remember I came back and I saw it and we bought it and he was managing it. And I was over there and it was working. I was like, oh, okay, this is working. Let's save up some more money and do it again. So about a year later, we saved up some more money and then we bought uh, another duplex. It's like, oh, okay, this is working. Let's save up some more money and, and do it again. And I would be, and then I kind of got a lot of research. I kind of got involved in trying to find the properties. So I started calling realtors in Chattanooga and be like, hey, I was calling from the Congo, but I had my uh, Google voice number. So it looked yeah. like I was from Chattanooga. Like, hey, I'm interested in this property. My business associate will come by and see it. I'm out of the country right now. I don't know or anything. He'll, he'll, I'm busy right now. He'll come see it. So my dad would go see it. I would find all the deals. 
And even though I was over there, that's how I was kind of participating. Like I was kind of participating. He was doing all the managing, even though he had a full-time job. Um, he was doing all the managing of the properties. And we got up to 24 units that way, or 22 units that way, where he was managing them. We were just buying them just the old-fashioned way, you know, save up 25% down payment and go buy a property, like just like that. And it took several years, right? Like three years. Yeah, three years to do that. So like from zero to 24 units or so, it took three years. And then in that time, in that third year, um, my dad called and he said, hey, I went to the doctor, they did a scan and they said, it's, I got a tumor on my liver. Um, and they said they can't operate the, the six months to live. It's like, man, it's like, no, this can't be right. I was like, what are we going to do? I was like, like, like we got to go find a place where we can get a liver transplant. We've got to do something. I'm like scrambling, like, no, no, no. But like, I was like, okay, I got to We bought tickets. Like, okay, we're moving. We're, we're going back next month. Like I bought tickets like a month away. I was like, okay, I can wrap up all I need to do. And, and then we'll go back. You know, we only have six months to live. He goes to another doctor. Yeah, same thing. Another doctor. Yeah, same thing. Okay. So I'm like, we got to do something, you know, sell all the properties, go get them treatment in any country that we can, like got to figure something out. And I got to be back there to be with my, my parents. Cause I have an older sister and a younger brother, but I've always been kind of like the, the responsible child, mm -hmm. even though my sister's older, she was never, I mean, she's just now figured out how to be responsible now that she has kids. Um, but so I was always been the responsible one and I got to go back and take care of my dad. And I remember thinking like, you know, it was going to be really tough. And even if we didn't make it, I was so glad for those three years that we had together building the business because we talked so much and we got so close doing it together. We never really have, even to this day, had an argument about how we were going to run the business or any properties. Like it's crazy. Like our partnership has just gone smooth for seven years, but we got to be able to spend so much time together. And so then finally he goes to a, like a fifth doctor down in Atlanta. And he's like, well, I never trust someone else's scan. I want to do my own. Does another scan. Turns out one, your liver has two lobes one lobe of his liver has shrunken down so much and the other lobe grew over the top of it that what they thought was a tumor was actually his shrunken lobe of a liver. Oh, good. So <laughs> that's a, that's a much better. Yeah. Okay. So like, okay, well he has this health condition, but he's not dying in six months. Right. But he does have this health condition. So at that point I decided, you know what, we're not going back this month. We changed our tickets to a year. I said, I told my wife, I was like, okay, you know, we've spent five years here with your parents helping them. Now it's time. I don't know how much time my dad has. He's got this health condition for him to have time with his grandchildren as well, you know, and be close to him. And so now I'm going to move back to the States. What am I going to do? If I get a hospital administrator job, I would have to go wherever it is. And I want to be right there close to my family in Chattanooga and be able to be flexible and a good and so I decided to do real estate full time. We had about 24 units. The property management income, you know, wasn't really going to be enough. You know, the 8% of it wasn't going to be enough. So fortunately, this other mission organization had about 200, um, 
Yeah, about two, no, no. No, they had about 118. I know they had 118 units of rental properties and they needed a property manager. Now, bear in mind, I've never been a property manager, but I have real estate and the property manager they had wasn't really taking it so seriously. He was experienced, but he wasn't really just paying much attention because he had other things to do. And so I was like, okay, I'm young, I'm going to come in and I'm going to do this. So they hired me, but it was for a mission organization. So they were going to pay me like 20 grand a year to manage 118 units. So it was kind of not, but anyways, it was worth the experience. Like that's probably why they couldn't get anyone else ready. They're offering 20 grand for 118 units (laughs) of management work. Um, But so that with my property was going to enable me to be enough full-time real estate investor. So I come back, like literally come back. And the day I show up, we're, we're, we haven't even gotten into our house yet. We're just staying because the tenants have to move out of our house before we can move back into it and, and get it ready. And we're staying in this like little apartment. And then my parents come over and like, my dad has to go to the, the hospital the next day for a procedure. And I was like, okay, well, this is why I'm back to take him there because my mom can't handle it. My brother can't handle it. So I was like, okay, I'm, that's why I'm here. Um, you know, even though I just flew like 15 hours to get back here, like, okay, I'm gonna, the next day I'm waking up and take my dad for his procedure. So I've been able to be here for all of those times that he, you know, he's had to go to the hospital and procedure. And that was the point. And I gained all that experience in real estate, you know, taking over 118 units, plus I had the 24 of my own and I was managing my own and I had an old van, I had all these tools in there and I was doing all the like maintenance work on myself, I was doing all the property management, all the showings, like all of it. Now for the 118 units, we did have maintenance people, but um, that was also a challenge because me coming in and stepping in and trying to implement like better policies and getting things done. And they were just used to just kind of like, well, it runs how it runs was a big rub. Like, who are you just coming in here thinking you can tell me how to run this? Like I've been the maintenance guy here for three years. And like, yeah, and you have 12 vacant units that aren't ready to be rented. Like, you know, like, that's not right. And so that's what I just focused on was like reducing turnover and getting things filled and reducing expenses. Like that's just where I focused on like, okay, just got to reduce these expenses, got to increase the occupancy, um, reduce turnover. And I was able to do that. And so I did that for those 118 units, got the value way up on them. And then we sold them for about 7.5 million um to another group interesting that we sold them owner finance so that organization still has the note on those properties so they're making about thirty thousand a month just from the note they're not paying any and and it, it still kind of brings me a little bit of pleasure because the person who bought it was like insulted me and said I was the smallest minded investor he'd ever met and da 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 and he had done hundreds of millions of dollars of deals and I'm just this little peon and I said, okay, that's nice for you. Um, and it's just been completely mismanaged. Like they are not making money. Like all these years later, they're still not making money. And right now they're trying to sell it. And it's so funny to see them try to sell it uh, because the cap rate is so low based on the actuals because they're doing such a horrible job. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to sell it for the market rates and the market's crazy right now. But when you look, it's like, man, you're like at a three cap in Chattanooga on like, a B and C class properties, like it makes no sense on your actuals because you've just mismanaged it. Um, anyways, this is where you go back and buy it from him. 
You take, you take right? it back and, do, and show them. Yeah, like, I show them how to do it. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, so when I was, I drew up the note, well, with the lawyer, but I put all these terms in there. Yeah. And one of the terms was like that the taxes and insurance have to be paid on time before they're late. So the first year they missed the tax insurance, the tax payments, and I had to remind them and remind them finally they paid it. The second year, uh, when they had to pay taxes again, because they bought it, they've had it for about three years now, but like the first year they didn't have to pay taxes because of when they bought it. It was already included in the closing. Um, so just this past February, because taxes are due in February here, and they didn't pay it. I sent a notice again, notice again, and they paid some of them, they paid all of them. And I actually, I actually am allowed to call the note due on unpaid taxes. And so I engaged a lawyer and I said, okay, we're gonna foreclose on this note just off of unpaid taxes. And we'll take these properties back. And I was so excited. Like, yeah, I'm going to take all these properties back and get them back and get them up. Then I'll sell them again for like right. $9 million. <laughs> uh, And I was getting really excited to do it. And the Lord's like, you sure you're going to do this? Like, yeah, man, he, I've given him plenty of time. But the guy begged me. He's like, just give me till Friday. I'll pay the taxes. I said, okay, fine. You pay If you pay the taxes by Friday and you pay the lawyer fee that I already engaged, I'll let you keep it. And so he did. I'm like, I was like, don't let this happen next year. Yeah. Look, I'm coming yeah. for these properties. <laughs> and now he's trying to sell them. He's like, well, I better sell these things before I lose them right. to David right. on foreclosure. <laughs> oh, so, but then I'm managing these properties and I'm doing real estate full time. And I'm just building more portfolio of like some duplexes here and there. I did a burr and the burr turned out okay on the house. But then I realized like doing the burr on a single family home, I'm going to end up with like a bunch of single family homes that don't cash flow or don't cash flow very much. Like, yeah, I got all this money out and yeah, I did it all without any money, but you know, the cash flow is going to be like, you know, a thousand bucks a year, maybe uh, if that's a good year, if nothing goes wrong. Um, so I decided to get more into like larger, well, medium sized multifamily packages. And and the same lady who gave me a car all those years ago, um, she had some money and we asked her if she wanted to invest in one of our deals. So first she, she did like a, a private money loan and we refinanced out and gave her the money back. And then we brought her in as a partner on a package of my first big package of 10 duplexes. And she put the majority of the down payment in exchange for 35% stake in the deal and just the the three of us me and my dad and her on this deal together and it was just like this one street of like a dead end street with 10 duplexes on it well there's 12 duplexes i owe 10 of i own 10 of the 12 i still haven't bought the other two uh, but it came as a package i still have it now and then she's invested and, and that's kind of just what i did i was just like okay look this works like i did it i put that deal together i got it done and I was able to tell this story to the lenders about my experience and what I've done. And they were okay with me bringing money from another partner. And I was like, ah, okay. That was kind of like the light bulb moment. Like I don't need to worry about what's in my bank account. I need to worry about what's a good deal. Yeah. And so then it started switching like, okay, if I'm doing this real estate thing, let me really do it. Let me, let me go big with this thing. And I realized that kind of early on, like, Investing in real estate, like real estate investing is good. Like, yeah, okay, you own a real estate investment, like it's good. But the real 
the real value and benefit comes if you treat it like a business. When you turn real estate investing into a business, that's when you like, like that's when the returns are astronomical. I mean, I've put of money, I think of money that I have personally made outside of real estate and put into investing. I think the total amount is about $115,000 of money that I've taken from outside sources and invested in real estate. And my dad has done about the same because we're 50-50 partners, right? And now I have a portfolio that's worth 37 million. Now that's the property it's value. Bad. It's not that's the property return. value. It's not like my net worth, right? Of course, yeah. but, but still like I took, you know, I, I sometimes like look at the stock market like, oh, someone, if they invested in like Apple stock at this point, like they made like a 16,000% return or whatever. I'm like, yeah, but okay. I took 115,000 and I turned it into 37 million of real estate. Like, okay. Like, that's amazing too. Um, and now like everything, obviously, I mean, I've been real estate full time and even if people like, Oh, it's risky or whatever, even if I lost everything today, I've had an amazing seven years, the last four years, just been able to, you know, with my family, be there for my dad. I've had this freedom to do what I want. I just enjoyed it. And so even if I lost everything, I've made way more than $115,000. Right. I could lose everything today and it still right. would have been worth it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, you, yeah, the, the stock market comparison, it's funny because it's like, I was, I was very bad about like doing any sort of it. Like I've worked like my whole life, but never been good about doing anything with the money, like doing any smart things. Mm-hmm. And then five years ago, I was like, I really should like, at that point I was like making some money. I was like, I really should invest but i i was just like i'm gonna i'm gonna do the stock market because that's what people do and so like actually put like i had some old iras and things like that from previous jobs just like rolled it all into one put it into to one account we sold we have sold one of our like we moved sold our house i took some of that money i got a robin hood account i'm like i'm just gonna figure this out like a buddy of mine was like you're crazy like you don't you just put all this money and you don't know anything about stocks or whatever. Like you're just going, I was like, it's kind of how I do things. I just, I'm right. like, I'll figure it out. I just, and, and I've done really well with it. And you know, like that certain stocks, it's like they're up several thousand percent since I bought them. And that's awesome. But like what, what's interesting, and I'm actually glad you sort of brought that up like, with the stocks. I don't, I don't have that money. Right. Like I can't do, you don't have cash flow from that. Like maybe if you have a dividend stock, sure. But like, I don't, those stocks that like really explode, it's cool. It's cool to look at them in my Robinhood account and be like, good job me. But like <laughs> it, in reality, it's like, if I want to touch that money, I don't have that stock anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you, you brought up sort of several examples of with your real estate, it's like you, you turn 115,000 to 37 million you've gotten cash flow along the way, like you, you, you've probably refinanced anything you've, you know, kind of, so like you've actually got to sort of, you've made a salary out of it. Like I'm not getting any salary out of my stocks and things like that. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting comparison that people make all the time, like, which is better. And I don't, I don't think, I don't have anything against stocks. Like I, I enjoy it. Like it's kind of cool to find a good stock, but it, it's just not, it's not a, it's not apples to apples. 
like I just think right. there's, there's too many, too many different, you can look at the, the numbers and say, oh, my return is phenomenal. Like, yeah, if you bought Apple when, when Apple IPO'd and you bought a bunch of like, you'll have made a lot of money on that, but the only way to get it is to sell it. And then you right. don't have, then you don't have Apple stock anymore. So it's kind That's of true. like you, you can't, you know, with, with your real estate, you're cash flowing off of all of this real estate. That is so interesting. You say that. Cause I always like whenever my wife, you know, my wife uh, stays at home and takes care of the kids. So she has definitely by far the hardest job of any of us. And uh, we've got four kids now. Okay. Um, but she's really got a great heart and likes to give money away. And she's like, Oh, I want to give more money to this organization or this one. I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. But whenever I think like, okay, I need more money. I don't think of like selling something, whatever. I think of buying another property. I'm like, Oh, we need more money. Right. Okay. I have to buy another property. Right. Like it's so counterintuitive to other people, but like literally because I just see like, okay, when I buy this property, now I've made 20 grand of cash flow. Okay. Now I have my 20 grand of cash flow because I bought this property. Right. Oh, I need some more. I need more, another 20 grand of cash flow. Okay. I got, I better go buy another property. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't work that way with stock. Right. right. It's like with stock, it's like, I want, I want, I like this company. I want to put money in and hope that it grows and, and, and great like that. Again, I don't like, this is not to knock people that buy stock. Like I don't it, like it's, it's a, it's good to diversify, but it's like what I, the more I look at, it, it's like the more I realize that it, it, it's just a totally different ball game. And, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people are missing out on the, on the real estate side, but I mean, I don't mean to get into like a, a discussion no. of, <laughs> of stocks, but it's it just kind of funny that, you know, sort of brought that up. I, th I think it's, it's a often missed when people make that comparison in that it's just not, it's not the same. Like you can, right. look at re you can look at returns. You, you can look at like people who it, bought Bitcoin and it, it shot up. It's like your return looks really good on paper, but if you didn't sell it and now it's dropped way back down, right. like that's it. Like you, yeah. you, you have no return or you have a negative return. Yeah. So it's kind of without, it's why, it's why the traditional retirement plan isn't really a good one right. because it's like, if you invest it all in stocks and bonds, effectively you have to sell them right. to get your money in retirement. And so you're essentially just depleting your retirement fund hoping right. that you die before it's gone. Like, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't really know. And and then, but with real estate, you've got these properties, you could retire today. Yeah. And yeah. not have to sell them and like leave yeah. them to your kids. And like, it's just kind of, it's a, it's a totally different, a totally different ball game, but yeah. But yeah, sorry. I, I <laughs> get it getting off topic a little bit, but um, I, I wanted to just kind of talk about something that really struck me from your story, especially sort of the beginning. And, and I think it, it really comes down to like the definition of wealth, right? So you, mm -hmm. you talked a lot about, you know, you, you grew up in, in, a, I'm also from, I'm from Massachusetts. So it's funny, oh. similar, similar backgrounds, but um, you know, so you grew up inadvertently around people that, you know, had some money and you didn't necessarily have money in your family. And, and it, it's, and, and I come to, I, we didn't have money either, but it, it's, I love when I hear like how much that doesn't really matter. Right. So like, that's mm -hmm. a big testament to your parents. I, I, I credit my mom. Like I didn't, I grew up without money, but didn't feel like I had an unhappy childhood. Right. right? And so it's like, it doesn't, 
it's not the money that makes you know that makes you wealthy like sure on paper it it does but it's what it's kind of what you do with it and it's like your 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 mission trips and things like like i i just feel like it's very cool that you're you know sort of the the values that your parents instilled in you and in all of that and i think you know i would assume that has had a major impact obviously you still partner with your dad so yeah no it has like it yeah no i definitely i mean it, it shaped so much of my life i'm just, you know so thankful for my parents um my father and my mother i mean they've been amazing and and they did i have had i mean that's you know we all have our advantages and our disadvantages and my advantage was not that i had money my advantage was that i had good parents who who you know helped me understand money at an early age even though we didn't have a lot of it and and showed me like appropriate ways to spend your money or what to do with it um not just like frivolous spending and but people don't realize that there's a book um the secret of the millionaire mind by t harv ecker um it's a small book but it it, it talks about like it's it talked about people it's kind of like a a book like get people to become millionaires or whatever but yeah. it talks about how our mind um has different concepts on money you know money is such a basic thing but we all think about it differently and it was so true and my wife and i we kind of had this block when we were starting out like because we're coming from the missionary mindset right so we're seeing all these other missionaries and missionaries often have this idea of like you have to suffer without money and people it's really interesting like people with money are bad but yet we need the we need the people with money to give us money so we can do our work but but people with money are bad right it's a real interesting but subconsciously it's there like especially with my wife and we had to talk about like no like if we become millionaires will we be bad people right like it's really in there and and so you know i already had the the framework of like of being careful with the money and what to do with the money um but I had to really think about and grow out and talk with my wife about like, okay, it's okay to use our talents to get a lot of money and that won't make us bad people, right? Like what else can we do uh, with that? So yeah, how you think about money is a huge part of your success and failure uh, in your money management. Yeah. Do you think, so for anybody who's listening, your your instagram is is diy landlord right so yeah diy underscore landlord yes yep. so anyone do you think i guess my, i'll just ask the question but i wanted to sort of so people know that you talk you have talked a lot i've heard you on other podcasts and stuff you talked about a lot about you, you do you do it all, all mostly yourself right yeah do you think that was impacted by this sort of mentality mindset of not wanting to appear rich, right? Not not wanting to appear like. Huh. Do you think that because 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 it, it does it to me, right? Like I do yeah. I do a lot of di and it's like and I have like like my wife, my friends, like just hire someone for that, and I'm like, yeah, but I can do it, and I don't I, like I don't want to be bougie or what you know what I mean. Like I I feel like I don't want to be that person, but at the same time, like is it? And I know now, and we could talk a little bit about, I know you've, you've sort of, you're shifting, I guess, towards more, right. it, as you mentioned, like it more of a business, but I, I'm, it, it just struck me sort of when you said that, it was like, is that? So there's, that so the there's two factors. All, there's, yeah. there's two factors. Um, and, and yes, to everyone listening, I do. I mean, I DIY'd everything, like anything in any other rental process, I've done it myself. Um, 
and, and some things I start hiring out, right? So I'm not, I'm not unclogging, unclogging toilets anymore. That's something I didn't like. And now I, I get people to do that for me. Okay. Um, I don't paint anymore. I don't really like painting. So I have painters who paint, um, but anything in the process, I've done it myself. Um, and I'm still now I'm, I'm trying to hire up staff, hopefully next month they're starting and I'm going to see that's going to be another part of the journey. But like, I still, I have over 200 units. I've got um, 160,000 square feet of commercial building and I still manage it all. I do all my own accounting, um, all of that myself. But it comes down to two things. One, you're de- I never thought about that, but you are definitely right that I don't like to show off money. I don't really need money to show up. I mean, like, we're just simple stuff. And my car, I mean, I was driving an old beater van forever. Like, all my tenants had nicer cars than me. And even when I was thinking of buying a car, like, you're right, I didn't want, I have a Toyota Camry now because I didn't want, like, a BMW or an Audi. Even though I really do want, I had an Audi for a while, but I never drove it to my tenant's place. Like, I don't want them to see, I don't want that, you're right, I didn't want them to see, like, oh, it's just this rich landlord coming here. Like, no, no, no. I'm just David. Like he's just a friendly landlord. Yeah. Um, and and then second is I have such a. I'm not like necessarily like super like overly frugal, but I do have like a value of money. Like it's like, man, like it shouldn't cost that much. Like if I'm overpaying for something, it will really bother me. If it, you know, it, it's all about this like reward and like I. I put a lot of value on like, yeah, that, that money is hard work to get. And I don't just want it to just go away frivolously. Like, oh, just because I can, now I'm paying people uh, $2,000 to paint the apartment when I know I can get someone for $800 if I just do the work and find someone else, right? Um, and if you never DIY, this is a big thing. If you never DIY, you never know really the true value of the stuff you're trying to get done. You don't have a sense of like how much time it really should take. And you don't know, you haven't gone through and found all these subs who can really do it for less. And you're just choosing the the person that you saw on a billboard to paint your place. And you you know, then you're paying retail prices on paint and and it's killing you. I'm getting stuff done for 50%. Like, and that's the real big thing about why I didn't really want to go with a property management company. I thought originally I would, but when I started seeing their expenses, not just like the property management fee, but how much they don't care about the expenses and in fact, they make money off of the expenses. I was like, no, 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 that would bother me too much when I see them overspending to turn an apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And another thing, when when you haven't done that, you know, sort of DIY stuff, you also don't, you can't really speak that language, right? So you can't, yeah. you, you know, you, you're you're talking to these subs, and you're not able to. Are you? <laughs> Are you able to explain the, the scope of work that you really want done? And are they telling you like, this is what I, you know, this mm-hmm. is what we're going to do and, and making sure that, that you're actually getting what you're paying for too. Mm-hmm. And it's like, uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've run into that when I have, you know, sometimes like you hire people out and you're like, I, I could have just done that. <laughs> like, I could have done a better, I could, you know, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just, but I, but yeah, I think I, I wonder, you know, if now sort of hearing the whole story, I think, probably and and again I'm like not really I hadn't thought about it specifically for myself either but I feel like it's just like when you when you put in how you grew up your background all of that you know even uh even in Zambia when you're you know you you were in the village you know kind of living living that life it's it's kind of 
I'm sure, I guess, you know, it's no surprise life's experiences impact us, but yeah. it's, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And that, and the, my whole Instagram account, my DIY underscore landlord, I mean, my, I have that, that feeling, but like, I'm trying to share everything on Instagram, um, as a way to just help people. And obviously my success goes on there and people can see how, you know, the success and they can infer the money or whatever. Like, I'm not like posting like fancy cars or anything on there, but, um, but that really has been something that my wife, because she also comes from the same background, but is even more like that than me has really been like, she really just not, she hasn't been so happy about that. Let me just put it that way because she's like, <laughs> you know, you don't want to put that all out there and people will know and see. And I was like, right. yeah, but they're learning and they're, you know, yeah. they're seeing that they can do it too. And like, I don't know that, that that's trying, what I try to do with my Instagram is that it's, I try to put things on there that, will just be useful uh, for people. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, I think, I and, and I, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> haven't met your wife, she may not care what I think, but I, your your account is not a boastful account. It's, it, it is it is providing value and, and uh, educating people. And, and I think it's a funny thing, I, I you know, when you're, uh, when you're syndicating and you're, and you're looking for investors, you know, people talk about going to, to your, your perfect avatar, you know, the person that that's you, right? You're supposed to mm -hmm. find investors that are you. And so for me, that's veterinarians. And it's, it's a, um, I know, I know that, but it is a struggle to figure out how best to kind of go to them without, you know, I, I really sort of feel like I've come to the conclusion, like, I actually have to like, put out some numbers and stuff like that mm -hmm. in what, in what real estate has done for us, just right. You know, because I think otherwise it's like, it's all just hypothetical talk and people, you know, don't really understand, but it's like, if I can show you, this is legitimately like what, even just me passively investing, mm -hmm. what we've been able to do from a cash flow standpoint in a short period of time. And then, you know, once you start throwing in the, the, you know, whether you're doing it yourself or you have people doing the work for you that, you know, that the actual hands-on investing, it's it's remarkable, you know, kind of what you can achieve in like not very long if, if yeah. you're willing to put in a little bit of work. It's, it's really uh, kind of amazing. But um, look, I, I probably could talk to you all day, but I, <laughs> I, know, I know you're busy. Let, let me, uh, let's jump to some of the questions that okay. I try to ask everybody. So, um, you know, in in spirit of the name of the podcast uh, being Know Your Why. So I think it's important to, to sort of find out what people, what drives people. Um, and, I, and thank you for sharing your story. It's, it's amazing. But, um, you know, I, I feel like people's why evolves over time, right? So your why when you're 20 is going to be different than when you're 30 and 60. You know, it's, it's always, but, but what's your why, you know, kind of at this point in your career? Yeah, so that, that is a good question. And you're right, it does evolve. And I kind of have competing whys, if that makes sense. I have, so I want to use my, my talents and my abilities to take advantage of my opportunities as best I can and do it to help other people, but not at the sacrifice of my family. Um, a lot of times, you know, there's that, that sacrifice mindset and like family gets sacrificed along the way so that you can help other people. So I don't, I really care about taking care of my family. Like a, that's been from the beginning. Like I want to make sure 
you know, maybe it's just a rational fear. Like if I'm dead, then my family's taken care of. Like, yeah. you know, something happens to my dad, my mom's taken care of. Like anyone in my family, like I'm always like, okay, they got to be taken care of. Um, so that's huge why for me. Um, and so it's, yeah, making sure that my family's taken care of and not just in money sense, because oftentimes we can make a lot of money, but we're not really taking care of family. And that's the kind of the curse of the entrepreneurs that we're so driven that we can forget our family. So in actually in that sense, I'm taking next year off as a sabbatical and I'm just, it's going to be family time. Now I'll still run my business, but I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to actively grow it and get more work and more deals. It's just going to be a family year. And then we're going to decide what we do after that. Yeah. Uh, I love that idea. And, and yeah, family, family is huge for me. And it's, it's, the fact that you can take a sabbatical for a year is like, again, it's like, listen to those people. Like, this is why you should be in real estate because it's like, what other job could you be like, Hey, I just want to spend next year with my family. Is that okay? They'd be like, no, that's not. And, and, And let me say, people think like, Oh, I'm DIY. I have no time. Even like every year since I've been doing this full time, I take at least two months of vacation every single year. Like, a lot of people in their nine to five don't even get that much right, vacation. Right. And yeah, I'm like, if they get two weeks. Exactly. Exactly. So I've always still been taking vacations. I always take, you know, I'll take an afternoon off with the family and stuff like that. Even if you're DIY, you can still make time away. Yeah. Um, don't think that if you start hands on, like, Oh, you're going to be like 60 hours a week and not a break and you can never go on vacation. It, it's not true. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's very doable. Um, Okay, so tell us something about yourself that maybe you've shared a lot, but maybe something that that's not known. So even if that's a hobby, a skill, you know, something that you're trying to, a skill that you're trying to pick up, any, anything that's maybe not common knowledge. Okay, uh, it's kind of new. I'm just starting. It's called adventure racing um, that I've gotten into, and that's where you like you have running, kayaking, biking, and navigation. So they give you a map with a couple of checkpoints, and you got to figure out how you get your checkpoints and get from point A to point B. Um, it's really fun. I like it because it's like mental and physical. And so I've been training on that. I've done about five races so far. Um, and my next race is going to be a 24 hour race. So it's going to be my longest one yet. Excited to see how I do on that one. I can't remember the name of the show, but there was just maybe within the last year, a show that was on. Yes. World's world's toughest toughest race. I loved that. Like, I was like, this is this is the kind of racing because I've done a lot of different, you know, I, I really like the, like the mud runs and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but the adventure racing that just looked incredible. Like, and the, like the probably mental stamina more yes. than physical stamina that the people, you know, the, the people that were just really good at, I mean, it, like the teamwork and camaraderie, it was, that was a pretty incredible thing to see. And I had not uh, seen that. So that's awesome. I, I that's that show is what got me into cool. doing it. Is it? Okay. I, had, I, was like, I had no idea. And then I saw the show and I was watching with my kids, my wife and mom was like, Oh yeah, you could do it. I was like, yeah, I could do that. I, yeah. I could do that. Like that, that is me. <laughs> like that mental, like, is you're right. Cause like the fittest people don't win. Right. Yeah. It, it's it not about, right. It's, it's at some point in that, you know, in their race, I mean, anybody who didn't see this, I, I don't, it was like weeks long, right. It was, it yeah. was a, a very long thing. And it, and I think at times it was just whoever doesn't quit. Right. Yeah. It's like whoever is like, I, and it's not just whoever one person on the quit. You've got your, your four teammates. Okay. So it's like, you got to kind of pick each other up because at some point everybody's going to hit a down spot. So yeah. uh, very, very cool. I, I love that. 
Um, we talked a little bit about your Instagram. Is that is that the best way to reach you? Yeah, is it, it is. Through Instagram? Yeah, okay. Instagram. So, DIY yeah. underscore landlord. Okay, perfect. And then I guess the last thing I would I would say is, what what piece of advice would you give to someone who's, you know, your, yourself several years back, you know, when you were uh, maybe not at the very beginning, but just kind of getting getting going, what, what would you tell them uh, to kind of inspire them if they're looking at your journey and saying, okay, that's, I see what he, I see what he's done. How, how do I, uh, how do I get there? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. People think that our world is reactive. So like something happens to us and then react, but the truth is it's actually predictive. The way we think determines how we're going to react to something when it happens. So we already have like preset in our minds, like, oh yeah, this is this, this is this, this is this, and this is this. So work on that. Work on saying, you know what? I, I am gonna be successful as a real estate investor. It, it doesn't matter if a tenant has a clogged toilet at 10 o'clock at night or whatever. Like that's not gonna be a big disaster. Like those problems are gonna be so small in comparison to the, and in order to get there, you have to get a little bit of experience. Like you have to start getting that evidence, right? Mm -hmm. So like start with something that it doesn't even have to be an amazing deal, but just like a deal that you can do is in your wheelhouse and get that evidence of this is going to work. And then you can start training your mind. Okay. I have this evidence. And now you'll start thinking it's going to work. It's going to work. I mean, I always expect everything going to work. You know, things go wrong. I mean, we talk about, you know, things go wrong for you, whatever, but in the end, we know it's going to work out because that's what our mind yep. is predicting. Right. So start building that habit of a little bit at a time. It's going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. If you know, in your mind, it's going to work, then you don't quit. You just figure it out when those problems come up. So exactly. uh, that's, that's fantastic. Listen, this was a blast. Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story. I, I really loved it. Uh, I think people are going to, are going to love this episode. So, so thank you very much, David. Thank you, Jason. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care, everyone.